This morning, the Lord's word comes from Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is our text for this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. We are so grateful to be here, O Lord. Thank you for inviting your sons and daughters into your home so that we can meet you face to face and to lift up our praises and thanksgiving to you. Lord, we recognize and honestly confess we don't deserve to be here. Yet by only the merits of Christ Jesus our Lord, we stand before you with confidence. So we ask that, Lord, you speak to us directly. Allow us to experience your presence, to hear your voice, and to learn, not just in our minds, but into our hearts, all that you're trying to teach us. May those who are gathered here, who are simply inquiring, wanting to know you more, soften their hearts by the workings of your Spirit so that they may come to know you and to understand the beauty of the merits of Christ Jesus our Lord, who clothes us with his righteousness. For we we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you are familiar with what churches do at the end of worship. Many times pastors come to the podium again, and they raise their arms, and they actually recite a benediction. A benediction is simply a prayer of blessing, a blessing given to the congregation of God on behalf of God by the pastor and declaring them usually using words of scripture. Now, growing up, we had a lot of discussions with my father, who happens to be a minister, who insisted that this is not a time when people should sneak out to get to the parking lot, but it's something that's essential to our worship. And as often is the case, we as children just simply ignored him saying simply that these are prayers, important as they are, perhaps not more important than any other part of worship. Often is the case that when you grow up and when you think deeply about these things, your parents are right about certain things. And in this case, I think my father was right, that the prayer of blessing at the end of worship is an essential, perhaps the culminating element of our worship that you and I need to pay more attention to. So this morning, I begin by just reminding us of the importance of benedictions. By saying benedictions, remind us worshipers that God has the first word in worship and the last word in worship. You might have noticed that we began this worship with words of Scripture, reminding us that God speaks to us and He is with us. And we will end our worship with the words of God, that He is the beginning and the end of our worship. Benedictions reinforce also the truth that God is the main message and the main messenger of our worship. 
that we not only have people standing here who stand in for God, but that the words that we declare are about God, and essentially in this act of celebration, God is the one speaking to us. He is the message and the one who delivers that message. Benedictions also declare the reign of God, that he indeed rules over us as a present reality, as well as a promise of the future. This is a present reality, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, but it's not only for now and here, but it's a promise with us as he, even as we depart from this place. That it's the promise that God's place in your lives will continue, not only during worship as if that this is the only extraordinary place of God's presence, but that indeed God's presence will be with you wherever you go. And the final thing we can say about benedictions is that benedictions remind the church of the blessings received, of her blessing, as well as her mission. That indeed the life of worship doesn't end when the benedictions comes to a, uh, come to a close, but the life of worship only begins. We are launched with this prayer into the world so that we may become a living witness for Christ Jesus our Lord. It declares without hesitation to whom we belong and to where we are sent, reminding us of the blessed state that we are in so that we may be ready for the world. You may be wondering, why are we even talking about benedictions at this point? Well, you may be familiar with many pastors who actually deliver benedictions, usually using the words found in our text this morning. Psalm 67 echoes the words of the benediction, and in these words, we are reminded of our blessings, your blessings and mine, and the responsibility to bless in grateful response. That's our goal this morning. As we think about being blessed here, perhaps many of you are familiar with these words. These words recorded here are the words usually used by pastors to bless the congregation on behalf of God, and these are actually taken from Numbers chapter 6, spoken by Aaron, the high priest, and often referred to as the Aaronic blessings. And in chapter 6 of Numbers, we see these words delivered to his people by God through the lips of Aaron when he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore is what often pastors say. Psalm 67 echoes these words. As the introduction indicates, it's a song. And whenever this song is sung, many who hear and participate cannot help but to be drawn back to those times when God blessed his people with these words. And so here, the hearers cannot help but to remember the salvation given to them by God, the journey that was accomplished because of the blessings of God, as well as the promise God gives to his people. And it's these words of blessing that we want to hover over for some time, asking ourselves the question, what do these words teach us? Well, the first, and perhaps most obvious, is the understanding that blessings come from God. Blessings come from the Lord. 
God is the creator and redeemer, and he is the one from whom all blessings flow. Notice what he says. May God be gracious to you. May God bless you. And may God make his face to be known on earth. Just in case you missed the point, the end of the blessings given to us in number six that Psalm 67 echoes, God actually enters the picture and interprets for us what prayer was just delivered. And he says, what I just said is this, I will bless you. Now, what's hidden in our English translations and many translations is the emphatic nature of the original, where the point simply is this, I myself will bless them. I and no other will bless them. That indeed, God is the source of all blessings, we're told. The reason why this is repeated so often, and perhaps you can ask the question as well, why is this emphasized so much? Perhaps it's because our natural tendency to look for blessings in all the wrong places. Indeed, Israelites were like that. The Israelites often sought blessings from other nations instead of going before the Lord. This often led to worshiping of the idols of the nations instead of worshiping the one and true God. It meant making golden calves instead of devoting themselves to worship before God. And perhaps many of us here this morning are guilty of the same, looking for blessings where no true blessing can actually be found, whether in relationships and families, financial security, our status before the eyes of the world, the accolades and adulations that come from many around us, our educations and the letters behind our name, our successes, Whatever those things may be, we desire to feel blessed from having and owning these things without recognizing that they are mere illusions. David Brooks, who is an opinion columnist for New York Times, penned a piece a couple months back where the piece was titled, Five Lies Our Culture Tells. Five lies our culture tells, the cultural roots of our political problems. Now, my interest this morning is not about politics, but the insight that this man, who is not a Christian, but a spiritual one, tells us about our nation and our culture. He says there are five lies. One, career success is fulfilling. Two, I can make myself happy. Three, life is an individual journey. Four, you have to find your own truth. Five, rich and successful people are worth more than poorer and less successful people. Now, we can talk about many more, but these are very instructive and insightful. Each one of these points have important things to say about our values and our present priorities. For instance, the world teaches us that the right school, the right job, and the right pay will lead to a fulfilling life and lasting satisfaction. But any one of us here who's reached that state recognize that that success ultimately turns out to be hollow. There's yet another plateau to be reached in your lives. As Brooks says, this is a lie and no success ever feels fulfilling. But what intrigued me here and what struck me was how the middle three that he mentioned, perhaps all of them in some ways, were lies about oneself. 
I can make myself happy. A lie about self-sufficiency. Life is an individual journey. A lie about one's freedom and desire to eradicate any allegiances or any communities. You have to find your own truth. A lie about every individual that his or her belief is the ultimate reality that we must actually adhere to. They're all about us, me, myself, and I. No wonder a book was written about a decade ago talking about the millennials and all generations, to be honest, simply saying the generation me is the state of our country as well as our culture. This is why we need the reminder, as the Israelites receive the reminder as well, that as James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the source of our blessing. But the second thing we ought to remember is that this blessing we speak of this morning, blessedness, is actually about knowing God. Blessedness is about knowing God. True blessing comes from a face-to-face relationship with God, experiencing His presence and favor. True blessing is about knowing God face-to-face and experiencing His presence and His favor. You may recall that Aaron's blessings begin with the words, the Lord bless you and keep you, a promise of God to provide for our daily needs when daily needs were hard to come by. And so when he says in verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase, God is our God, he shall bless us. There is an embedded promise that the Lord will provide for our daily needs. Yet, the focus of our text is really not about our daily provisions. The focus of the Lord's blessing in Psalm 67 are found in these words. May God be gracious to us and make his face to shine upon us. To make his face to shine upon us. True blessing is knowing God face to face. The image of God having God's face shine upon us is the one that the psalmist focuses on this morning. Do you know what I mean by faces shining, faces beaming toward us? The best example I can give is when our children were young. My kids are now 14 and 12, so when I come home from work, they don't stir. They don't move at all. When they were younger, however, when they were two, three, four, and five, they will drop everything they were doing. Perhaps parents can testify to this, or maybe it's just my kids. They would rush toward the door with faces shining. Do you recall that time? Uh, my wife was also like that when I would come home from work <laughs> one time, long time ago. That hasn't happened for some time. But you know what I mean by this, right? When the face beams because they're so glad to see you. The essence of biblical blessing is to have the Lord delight on us in us so much that it is as if his face shines whenever he sees us. It is as if his face beams when he sees us. Blessing is not primarily our faces shining at beholding the beauties of God in nature or things around us or beholding them in our hands in a tangible way, simply saying, oh, I am so blessed because we possess whatever we think that fill-in-the-blank moment might bring. 
No, true blessing that Scripture speaks of is when God delights in seeing his children and he beams when he sees his sons and daughters. This is why the Scripture, in telling us about our relationship with God, reminds us of the intimacy of that relationship. So, for instance, when we speak of, in Genesis 5, Enoch's relationship with God, it simply summarizes by saying, Enoch walked with God. That great preacher one time, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on that passage, talked about the significance of that intimacy. In Enoch walking with God, he's not talking about where they're going, as if the destination is what makes the time delightful. He doesn't talk about the mood or the area, whether being beachside or mountainside is what those walkers actually cared about. Even less, topic was not discussed, as if the, the way and the what we talked about really made that walk meaningful. No, no. Enoch simply walked with God, and that was good enough. This is another reason why when Moses is described in his relationship with God, Exodus 33 says about their relationship, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's the intimacy. As a man speaks to his friend, and the Lord beams when he sees you. Not only is God the source of our blessing, true blessedness is about knowing God and experiencing him face to face in an intimate way. But this is where we run into problems. What makes this blessing truly amazing is that we were once undeserving of this blessing. Friends, our sins got in the way. In beholding the holiness of God, Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and his perfection was such that here, Isaiah concludes that God was angry with him. He cannot be otherwise because of our sins. In Romans, Paul described our conditions apart from Christ Jesus as weak, ungodly, sinners upon whom came the wrath of God. I realize that this is difficult for some of us here to hear. In a generation where most of us simply say of ourselves, we're not that bad, we're not perfect, we're not that bad, we don't fully come to recognize the Scripture's teaching not only about the sins with which we were born, the sins that we commit on a regular and daily basis, and the pollution and the rebellion in which you and I exist each and every single day. Instead of his face shining upon us, we should face the full force of his wrath and his anger in a just and deserved way. But Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus is the embodiment, as you remember, the perfect son, and God himself said of him in Luke, he is my beloved son. And he says, with you, I am well 
pleased. He deserved the full attention and the beaming and shining of his Father in heaven. Yet, we know that he shouldered our sins and our failures. We know that he endured the mockery and chastisement of the soldiers. He faced abandonment and ridicule from the very people for whom he came. Yet, all this humiliation pales in comparison to the abandonment of his father, who turned his face away, as that hymn says, when his son hung, son hung upon that cross. You remember what the son said. Hanging upon that cross, he simply yelled out loud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a moment of abandonment and forsaking by the father toward his son whom he loved. And here, Paul, looking at what took place, explained it this way when he says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He hung upon that tree, bearing the burdens of our sins, and became a curse with the Father turning his face away from his son. What what Jesus endured on the cross was the exact opposite of the blessings recorded for us in Psalm 67. God did not shine upon him. God did not continue to promise blessings upon him. He was bruised for our iniquity. Jesus was broken for our sins. He was abandoned for our faithlessness. He was cursed for our blessing. This exchange... Paul understood well, and the way he remembers it is by explaining it in 521 of 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God made Jesus his son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange, isn't it? The cross we ought to bear he bore for us. And because of Jesus, we now are receiving God's blessings that we do not deserve. We do not deserve. Once a sinner deserving of wrath, God is now, as verse 6 says, our God. God is our God. He shall bless us because his face shines when he sees us in Christ Jesus. He now sees me and you through the bloody lens of Christ Jesus our Lord, no longer seeing us in our sinfulness and our brokenness, but seeing us through the work of his Son. Therefore, now we enter his presence, our God's presence, with confidence and joy because his grace has been poured out for us. God's face is turned toward us in Christ Jesus. And no matter what happens in life, it can never be turned away, and he beams when he sees you in Christ Jesus. Verses 6 and 7 say, God, our God, shall bless us. Just in case you don't remember, he says it again, God shall bless you. Friends, we are blessed I cannot begin to imagine or fathom what you are walking through in life. We're on this side of glory. All of us are broken and disillusioned in some ways, suffering 
with the daily chores and difficulties. Sure, blessings that we count on, yet oftentimes our eyes fixate on those things that are negatives and those things that are distractions in our lives. Yet what the scripture reminds us is that you and I, we are blessed. Not because of this beautiful church in which you find your community, not just because of the wonderful pastors that you have, not simply because of many blessings you have in life that you tangibly see and feel and know. All those things are by the providential care of God. But first and primarily because for those of you who call upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your blessing is found in the fact that you know him. And because you know him, His eyes are turned towards you. His face shines when he sees you in Christ Jesus. We are indeed blessed. We ought never to forget that. It's when we recognize the true blessing that we have in Christ Jesus, we're able to think clearly about this blessing now being received, what that means for us. The psalmist is clear that being blessed comes with a purpose. Verse 2 begins with a purpose clause when he says, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations, he said. Surrounded by blessings, the core of the psalm is the refrain of verses 3 to 5. Verses 3 and 5 repeat the exact same words. Notice what it says. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In the middle of this twice-repeated call for praise is this refrain when he says, let the nations be glad. Those are, those are words, remember, used by John Piper to write his book on missions? Taken from here. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now, we can unpack this in multiple ways, but there are two things that I want us to remember. What blessed people should be like. Blessed people give thanks in worship. Blessed people give thanks in worship. In these three short verses, we are reminded to praise and sing for joy five times. Let the people praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. What do you think the psalmist is trying to remind us of? By repeating it five times, he is saying this is important. You guys went through the Heidelberg Catechism, which I grew up with, and the first question it asks is, what is your chief comfort in life? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death in my precious Savior, Jesus Christ, is how it begins. Our belongingness to Jesus is the greatest gift. And then question number two asks this, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer is, first, how great my, my sin and misery are, guilt. Second, how I am to set free from all my sins and misery, grace. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverances, gratitude. I came to the States long ago, um, 1982, I was nine. And when I came to the States, one of the first things that many immigrants here may remember, you want to get the language right. You try really hard to get the words right. Faith, THs are hard. Uh, Jesus, where the S functions like a Z 
is hard. I think you know what I mean by many of these difficulties. And the first time when I talked to someone on the phone, and later on when I met the person, he turned to me and he said, I thought you were a white person, he said. And for some reason, that was a great thing. I reached my goal of getting rid of accents that hindered my life in some ways. And then, as I grew up, you recognize everyone has an accent. Even in America, different regions have accents. Anthony Lane, who is a scholar of the Reformation, once spoke in America, and first questioner got up, and the person began by saying, I love your accent. And his response was classic. He said, I don't have an accent, you have an accent, is what he said. We recognize that accents indicate where we're from, the journey that you and I have taken. No longer elements of embarrassment, but stories to tell about who we are and where the Lord has taken us. And what we come to recognize is that you and I, as people of another world, we also ought to have accents. These are heavenly accents, accents that indicate to the world our story and where you and I have come, and where you and I are heading one day as we head home. You know the accent that marks us as Christians who belong elsewhere, in the home where our God is at the center of all things? It's thankfulness in worship. That's all that we'll be doing. For those of you, I'm sorry. If you get bored for the hour and 15 minutes you're here on Sunday morning, let me just tell you, in heaven, this is all that you'll be doing. My, my, my encouragement to you is that you should get used to it. This is what marks us for who we are. Even unbelievers, friends, thank whatever, whether they call it a God or not, they thank God or gods when things are going well, when their life is successful, when their kids are healthy and growing well and going to Ivy League schools, and then when everything around them, relationally otherwise, seem all successful, they give thanks to whomever they see as powers beyond them. What makes believers in Christ Jesus extraordinary and contrarian is the very fact that we give thanks in the midst of the valley of shadow of death. It's not because we're positive thinkers. It's not because somehow we have greater sense of endurance, but we know that in the midst of those things, God is there with us. And our Father is the one who pushes us from the back, pulls us from the front, walks alongside us, and when he sees us, his face beams toward us in Christ Jesus. We give thanks in worship, and we give thanks in all circumstances, for he has been good to us. But not only do we give thanks in worship, we also, there's a second part here where it says, bless people, proclaim. The community of the saved not only gather to worship and give thanks, but also to proclaim. The joy cannot be contained. It must be shared. It cannot be hidden. They, the joys that they feel, must be proclaimed. We are called to this. Verse 2 says, Your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. There are no boundaries. The psalmist repeats all peoples and all nations, ending with the call, let all the ends of the earth fear him, he says. It's intriguing, right? That 
What he calls us to do in gratitude is not only lift up worship and thankfulness, but he wants us to go out and proclaim. Last November, I was in Japan, and part of the reason for this illustration is because I know, I think you know at least one of the persons that I'll be speaking about. Um, I was out at the invitation of Presbyterian Church of Japan. It is the second largest Reformed denomination in Japan, but it's puny, average church size, 50 or 60. There are seminars as well as visits with schools and churches I was engaged in, but one morning, I had this great breakfast time with two brothers. One, his name is Rui Wang. He, as his name suggests, is Chinese national, came out to Japan to get his PhD in civil engineering. When he finished it, Jesus found him there. He and his wife came to our seminary, got his MDiv, went back to Tokyo, and he's ministering an international church in the middle of Tokyo. The second gentleman there with me was Mark Bocanegra, someone that I think many of you might know. A missionary for the PCA, married to a Japanese lady, three beautiful daughters. He went to Stanford, came down to our school to get his MDiv, now ministering faithfully in Japan. And as we're sitting and praying and thinking about evangelizing that particular country, we were struck by the reality. Here is one guy who is a Chinese national, another guy who's Filipino-American, and a third guy who's visiting who's Korean-American. During World War II, when many of our parents were born, if you were to think of three countries most brutalized by the imperial intentions of Japan, these three were it. China, the Philippines, as well as Korea. I can't think of any other country more brutalized during that time period. Yet, the generation next and the next are gathered sitting in the heart of Tokyo, praying and thinking and discussing what the Lord is doing among the people of Japan. If it's not the gospel, I don't know what is. Breaking down barriers made by human beings through the power of the gospel is what you and I are engaged in each and every single day. When we speak of these things that the scripture asks us to consider, that the gospel message proclaimed to us, in which we find our blessings in Christ Jesus, must be proclaimed, our immediate thought is someone, sometime, somewhere. Often it's not me nor my children, right? Here, the scripture is reminding us that it's really about you and me now, today, here in this place. And here the Lord calls us not only to give thanks and worship, but as blessed people, we are to bless others by the proclamation of his name. This is the way we love our neighbors, recognizing that we are blessed with a purpose to proclaim his name and to live out his life. We are blessed to bless. As people blessed by God, through Jesus Christ, we gather to worship, lifting up praises and thanksgiving to the Lord. We gather for fellowship, blessing others by our thankfulness and our generosity. To whom much has been given, we have the opportunity and the joy of being able to serve. And we are moved to proclaim, declaring out loud, 
both in words and deeds, what Jesus has done for us. It cannot be contained. It cannot be hidden. It must be proclaimed. Bless people, worship with thankfulness. Bless people, proclaim his name. We have a gathering of a lot of people who are blessed this morning. We have a gathering of lots of men and women, sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus, who are called upon to worship with thankfulness and proclaim his name. Scattered and launched after this worship to go forth, go forth with his promise and his blessings. So in order to end this time together, I can think of no better words than to actually repeat the words given to us by our Father in heaven. When he says to you, your, his sons and daughters, upon whom his face shines and beams, these are his words to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. May you go with his blessings. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, O Lord, for our blessings in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If there are many who are here who do not know nor have tasted this blessing, we ask that by your Spirit you work in their hearts for them to see their eyes open to see you directly, that indeed their hearts may be moved to seek you. For those of us who have received this blessing, but often forgetting these blessings in our daily lives, allow us to give thanks to you in worship and in life. Allow us to share and proclaim these truths, knowing that it's not just for me or for those of us who are here, but to the ends of the earth, every knee shall bow and their lips declare the grace of God that has come in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you and pray this in your, the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.